If you haven't met me, my name's Maddie and I'm a first year primary ed student. And if you have already met me, my name is still Maddie and I'm still first year primary ed. Um, and today we're reading from Romans 6, 1 to 23, just on the inside of your little leaf. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from death by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in unity of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ... We believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. For the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness, and speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. But when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. For now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. <laughs> well, good afternoon. Uh, my name's Richard, if you haven't had the chance to meet me uh, before, uh, and I'll have the pleasure of leading us through the last three weeks of the set of studies in the book of Romans. Uh, and it is a great book, isn't it? Written by God, ultimately, through the pen of the Apostle Paul in what arguably is the most significant letter that Paul ever wrote. But as we come to this part of the Bible... Uh, given that it's God's word, would you please pray with me, given that we are hearing his voice. So please do that. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the enormous privilege it is to gather at this time to hear your word, both read and taught. And please, Father, help me to teach it faithfully and well. And please help us to listen ever so carefully and please help us to respond in a manner that is pleasing to you. Amen. Amen. 
Well, my wife Jeanette and I have recently returned from long service leave, which is why you haven't seen me around uh, this semester, let alone most of this year, because of our involvement in Canberra as well. But we enjoyed, in our long service leave, a cruise, would you believe, from Tokyo to Sydney, which took about a month. And although as passengers, we, shall we say, lowered the average age by 20 or 30 years <laughs> on the cruise, it was fun trying to live according to who we were as passengers on the cruise. Just one example. On several occasions, there were formal gala nights. And to live accordingly on a gala night was to actually, well, dress up accordingly. See, it was a formal occasion. And so I would dress up in a suit, the only one that really I own. <laughs> and Jeanette would wear something matchy-matchy on the occasion. Formal to suitably match me, that is. And we would therefore go in and enjoy something of a formal photographs and then sit down for a four-course banquet. Someone has to do it, don't they? <laughs> and that was the situation it was for us to live accordingly as passengers on this cruise ship. Now, believe it or not, this is the big point of Romans chapter 6. To live accordingly to who you are not on a cruise ship, but far more importantly, as those who are in Christ. To live accordingly to who we are as those in Christ. Now, if you've not been here before, what we're working through is a letter in the New Testament known as the book of Romans. And we're going through it chapter by chapter, and we've broken it up in particular ways. And this time we're up to the second half of chapter 6. But... So far, just to remind you, in the book of Romans, we've learnt that Christians are sinners saved by grace alone. That is, we have been saved from the righteous anger of God purely by his own undeserved generosity that's been poured out upon us through the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's grace, the undeserved, unmerited favour of God. And as such, our past is dealt with because of and only because of what Jesus did in dying the death that you and I deserve. And our future is certain because and only because of the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, never to die again. And this is all because of his unmerited favour, his 100% incorruptible, undeserved generosity, grace. Now, if you've understood this news of the gospel, then the next question should not come as any surprise. As you saw last week in chapter 6, verse 1, this question was asked. If we live by grace, that is, if we're saved by grace, then what shall we say then, verse 1? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, that makes sense, doesn't it? If God's business is to graciously forgive sins, then we might as well keep him in business. So sin like crazy. Get on with it because this grace will abound more and more. Now, I know that you looked at the first half of chapter 6 last week, but I'm actually going to go over it again to show how it actually helps us understand the second half because it all fits together 
really, in terms of its logic. There's a man by the name of Gregory Rasputin. He was part of a renegade sect within the Russian Orthodox faith who believed that the only way to reach God was through sinful actions. He used to say that when I go to confession, I don't offer God small sins, petty squabbles, jealousies. I offer him sins worth forgiving, that's what he would say. Now, presumably none of us are crass like Rasputin. But I actually wonder whether we have a Christianized version of such logic that goes something like this. That is, as a Christian, if we are Christians, if we trust Jesus, our Lord and Saviour, then we still struggle, I take it, with particular sins. But given that I fail so often, maybe it's not worth fighting. After all, they're not really hurting anyone else. Or I'm actually doing this while I'm in a consensual relationship with someone else and it doesn't really matter because we're not hurting anyone else. And God will forgive me anyway. Has that ever, ever been your experience? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? What's Paul's answer? Remember from last week, verse 2, by no <coughs> means. No way. Heck no. God forbid. Or as the J.B. Phillips version put it, what a ghastly thought. <laughs> Does God's grace encourage us to sin? No. God forbid. Why? Because we're united to Christ. That's why. Remember verse 2 again. Let's come back to verse 2. Just to get us back into the picture again. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. That is to say, if we are Christians, then by the grace of God, we enjoy an intimate relationship with Jesus. So intimate is this relationship that we are said to be baptised into his death. And into his burial. Right? The word baptised means to be immersed into these events. It doesn't necessarily mean dunking in water. But to be baptised into Jesus' death is to be immersed in his death so that when Jesus died, we died with him. When Jesus was buried, we were buried with him. What happened to Jesus happened to us. If you were here when we looked at Romans chapter 5 and the second half of it, you might recall that when Adam sinned, we sinned. As he ate the fruit, we ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And likewise here, you see, grace abounds so that we die in Christ, we rise in Christ. And this all happens when you and I became Christians, if we are Christians here today. If we've turned to Jesus, if we trust him as our Lord and Saviour, 
then we are so united to Jesus that what happens to Jesus happens to us. What happened to Jesus happened to us. I used this illustration back at mid-year conference, but if you weren't there, this is what I said. <coughs> it's kind of like going to an airport about to board a plane, a plane, shall we say, that's going to Canberra. Let's just say that that's the place and destination. And you want to work out, what is your relationship to the plane in order to get to Canberra? Do you live under the plane? Because the plane has such authority, so I submit to the authority of the plane. Or are you inspired by the plane? Wow, look at it, take off. One day, I'll be like that plane. <laughs> or do I follow the plane? I look at it, it goes, and I go running after it as fast as I can with my tiny little legs, as fast as that marathon runner who just broke the world record. But that's not fast enough either. But, you know, my relationship to the plane determines how I get to Canberra. But, of course, the best thing is to be in the plane, isn't it? Because if I'm in the plane, what happens to the plane happens to me. Do you see? Because all those things we can say of Jesus, can't we? I submit to the authority of Jesus. I'm inspired by his example. I follow Jesus. Yes, they're all true, but Paul's talking about being in Jesus. So that what happens to Jesus happens to me. Let that sink in for a moment, therefore. If we've been saved by God's grace alone through the death and resurrection of Jesus and not by any of our own efforts then God sees us as those so united to Jesus that when Jesus died, I died. When Jesus rose again, I rose again. <coughs> what happened to him happened to me. And what's the effect of being one with Jesus, therefore? Verse 6, verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. See what he's saying? As one united with Jesus, what has happened to Jesus has happened to us. Therefore, he broke the rule of sin. So therefore, the sin that rules no longer rules over me. Sin is no longer my master. The old self that serves sin was crucified with Jesus. So I'm no longer under the rule or power of sin. I'm to say no to sin because it no longer rules over me. The rule of sin is broken. Furthermore, the penalty of sin is broken. What's the penalty of sin? Death. That's the penalty of sin. That's broken because of my union with Christ. See there verse 9? Look at verse 9. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over me. Death is the rule of sin or the penalty of sin. It shall no longer have dominion over me. For the death Jesus died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. 
You see, what happened to Jesus happened to us. Jesus died the death that you and I deserve, but he also dealt with the death penalty by rising from the dead, never to die again. The penalty of death will never have mastery over Jesus. And therefore, when we rise again with Jesus, that is to say, when we rise again bodily from the dead, when Jesus returns, then we will never die again either. So if our union with Christ deals with the rule of sin, if our union with Christ deals with the penalty of sin, then how are we to consider ourselves, verse 11? So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's how you consider yourself. Is that how you consider yourself? Dead to sin, alive to Jesus? Do you walk around campus going, Hey, I'm dead to sin, everybody. I'm alive to Jesus. But that really is the reality, isn't it? The question is whether you believe that reality or not. If our union with Christ deals with the rule and penalty of sin, then the reality is that we are dead to sin and alive to God. But does that mean we can live a sinless life? Romans 6 is not teaching us that we can live perfect lives this side of heaven. Although it does say that the rule and penalty of sin is dealt with. It's not saying that the presence of sin is dealt with. And we certainly know that from experience. Some time ago, a cheeky Baptist pastor, all Baptist pastors are cheeky. I'm happy for you to tell that if you go to a Baptist church anywhere. This cheeky Baptist pastor once met a man who actually thought that you could reach a perfect state in your life without sin. It was called a perfectionist movement. And he was at a conference with him. And this pastor actually got up as he was explaining that you could be perfect in your life. This Baptist pastor got up and he got a jug of milk and poured it over his head. And the other guy stood up and started swearing. And this Baptist pastor just smiled at him and sat down. (laughs) See what's going on there? The presence of sin is not dealt with. We're not saying that you are perfect. What Romans 6 is saying, that if you are united to Christ and Christ has dealt with the penalty of sin and indeed the mastery of sin, the rule of sin, then sin doesn't make sense in the life of the believer. It's an anomaly. It doesn't make sense, you see. It's kind of like going to one of those gala nights in your swimmers. On a cruise, it just doesn't make sense. It's just so out of alignment. You don't do that. Doesn't mean you can't do that, you know, physically. I can imagine some kind of yobbo doing that, you know, on a cruise ship. But but that's not the point. It just doesn't make sense. You're not aligned that way. It's an anomaly in the life of the believer. Sin doesn't align with the state that we are in. Namely, united to Christ. 
Although present, sin has no place in the life of the believer. And dealing with sin begins with a recognition of who we are. We're united to Jesus, dead to sin, alive to Christ. So live according to who you are. Live according to who you are. What are the who you are commands? Verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. That word instrument is actually the word weapon. Can you imagine that? Use your bodies as weapons of righteousness, not of unrighteousness, because it is a weapon in the end. It can really do damage or it can really do good. I can use my hands as a weapon to steal, to hit, or I can use my hands in order to help, to build. It's a weapon. And he's talking about very, very practical that my body what? to be used for righteousness or unrighteousness. I can use my tongue in order to gossip, to lie, or I can use my tongue in order to encourage, to help, to proclaim. It's very, very physical, very practical. I can use my eyes to, to lust, or I can use my eyes to be looking at pure things, filling my eyes with really good things. Isn't that that, that greatest song of the greatest theologian in Australia, Colin Buchanan? <laughs> be careful little eyes what you see. Be careful little eyes what you see. There's a father up above who is looking from above. Be careful little eyes what you see. Be careful. If I know I'm united to Christ, I will use my body and my bodily parts for righteousness. It just doesn't make sense to use it for unrighteousness. And those of us who know that we've used our parts of our body for unrighteousness know the, the guilt that comes with that and the feelings of guilt that come with that. But do remember the overarching reason why we can live according to who we are. And that is verse 14, isn't it? For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Under grace. We begin the Christian life by grace. We continue the Christian life by grace, because we live all of life under grace. This is not a an effort thing that is only of our own kind of abilities. No, it's all, it all comes from God's grace. It's by grace that I'm able to do these things. I'm not on my own. I'm united to Christ. The undeserved generosity of God is what rules us. Not law, not duty, not obligation, not morality, not sin, but grace. 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 
And it's only when you understand the gospel of grace that you have any hope of using your bodies as weapons of righteousness. That's where you start. That's where you continue. That's where you keep on going. And if at the moment you're feeling the weight of guilt because of whatever you may have done in terms of unrighteousness, the place to go to first and foremost is the grace of God in Christ Jesus at the cross. That's where your sins will be dealt with. That's where you will have the source and strength and energy to continue to turn back to Him and resolve to live for Him, for His pleasure and His glory ongoingly. But that's where the next question comes in, isn't it? In verse 15. Verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? Again, by no means. Heck no. <laughs> now, how is that question different to verse 1? Right. Are we to sin because we're not under law, under grace? That's verse 15. And then verse 1. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Do you see? They're kind of the same, but they're different, aren't they? What's the difference? Well, why don't you ask one another for a moment? Go for 30 seconds. What's the difference between the two questions? Go. Okay, the Okay, there's your one minute. I'm sorry about that. Anybody got any thoughts? Love to hear what your thoughts are. Anybody on my right over here? I'll just look at this direction. Going once. Twice. Yeah. Um, is it kind of verse 1 is more should we sin? Like grace may bound, that's a good thing. Whereas verse 15 is more can we sin since we're not under the law? Yeah, anymore. yeah, yeah. I think that's right. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Good on you. Um, if you were cheating, it was actually in my outline already. See, so it's, it's kind of like that. It's along the lines that Lisa just mentioned. That is, does grace encourage us to sin? That's verse one. Whereas verse fifteen is more, does grace permit us to sin? Right? One's a permission thing; the other one is an encouragement thing. You see, it's it's a little different, but it is different. It is different. It's a slightly different question. And Paul's answer to the second question, therefore, is a little different. The first, uh, his answer to the first one is that we're united to Christ. So therefore, uh, it shouldn't encourage us to sin. If anything, it's an anomaly. But now we get into the text for the second half. He's saying, heck no, well, why? Why? But it still comes out of the first half. And his answer has got to do with slavery. So far, we've learned, first half, chapter 6, that God's grace 
frees us from the rule and penalty of sin, but this freedom doesn't encourage sin because we're united to Christ. In the second half, does God's grace permit us to sin? No, it frees us from a bad slavery to a good slavery. That's Paul's answer in the second half. You see the logic? Now, what does it mean to be a slave? Uh, We all get it, don't we? To be a slave is to serve a master. To be a slave is to serve a ruler. And we all serve someone or something as our master. You might not think you're a slave, but you are. And you can identify what that master is by where your thoughts continually go or who or what you want to please supremely. That's your master. Now, it may well be yourself, but my guess is it's still someone or something else in the end. What is that master? Now, this is not a question of identity. Who am I? It's rather a question of ownership. Whose am I? Who or what owns me as their slave? You know, are my thoughts and directions and, and what I lose sleep over my university course? Because that could be the master. My thoughts, my loss of sleep, do they loom around the, the potential career? That could be a master. Or, or the overseas trip that I've been planning for all these years because of all the money I've earned from my part-time job that I'm just saving away for that cruise to come? Or is it the, the girlfriend or the boyfriend? The fiancé? Whose eyes do you most want to please? That's your master. And it's worth doing an audit. It's worth pausing and reflecting. If there's one thing you can reflect on, even these few, who is that master? Because if the one you most want to please is not God, then you are a slave to sin. And let me assure you that sin never satisfies. Serving someone other than God, serving something other than God, will always lead to disappointment at some point. It will never satisfy. For look at where sin leads you. That's where he goes on to say in verse... 20 and 21. Look at it there. What fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you were now ashamed? For in the end, those things, uh, for the end of those things is death. That's verse 21. And verse 20 beforehand, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But now, if you're actually enslaved to something other than God, those things end in death. Because as we read in the last verse, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. We'll come back to that. But if if all you live for is something other than God, someone other than God, then life just becomes this treadmill of existence leading nowhere with fruitless, fruitless ends that are just punctuated by death. You're born, you live, you eat, you die. You're born, you live, you eat. You, you might do a university course, you, 
you might get married, you might get a job of some kind, and then you die. You might do all of that and then have children, and then you die. It just ends in death. It's just punctuated in death. You're born, you live, you eat, you die. You're born, you live, you eat, you die. You're born, you live, you die. And when you die, you get eaten as well by those worms. And then the ducks eat those worms. And then your children eat the ducks, which means that your children would have eaten you in the process. How mad is that? It's just ridiculous. It's an endless cycle, and that's, that's kind of what Ecclesiastes gets at. It's just meaningless in the end. It's fruitless, and it doesn't satisfy. It just doesn't satisfy. You might think like, oh, I'm going to get this, and I'll, I'll just tick off all those things in the bucket list. Why is it called a bucket list? It's because you kick the bucket in the end and die. <laughs> that's what it means. As if you're going to feel, as if that's all going to be so, so fulfilling. It's not. In the end, it's a disaster. An absolute disaster. Because slavery is an addiction. An addiction that leads to death in the end. But look at the contrast in verse 22. And 23. Look at that wonderful, wonderful contrast. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end <coughs> eternal. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Please note the difference between a wage and a gift. A wage is given, uh, sorry, is to be given what we deserve. And what we deserve if we choose to live for something or someone other than Jesus is death. The wages of sin is death. Whereas a gift is to be given when we don't deserve it. And what we don't deserve is eternal life. Eternal life, note, in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we're back to grace, aren't we? Does God's grace encourage us to sin? No, because we are united to Christ. Does God's grace permit us to sin? No, because we are slaves of Christ. Your identity is in Christ, whether it is united to Christ or as slaves to him, but you couldn't get better than that. God's grace encourages us to live according to who we are. Those who are slaves to God in Christ. What will that mean for you? Three points to conclude. One. Don't ever get comfortable with sin. Kill it. And kill it early. What you do with your hands, what you do with your eyes, whether it's what you watch and certainly even your right foot into the speed limits, DVDs, whatever it is, your mouth, kill it early. Don't get comfortable with it. It's just an anomaly in the end. Kill it at the very beginning 
if you're struggling with relationships and affections that are just leading to points where you know are not to be there, then kill it early. At the get-go, kill it early. If you're struggling in terms of greed and what it is that you're looking at, just, just passing around what it is the, the, what's being marketed online, etc., just kill it early. Get rid of Facebook. Get rid of it on your phone. You know, get it rid of it at least on one device. That 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 will give you thirty thousand years of life, I think. <laughs> but get rid of it early. Don't get comfortable with sin because it's an anomaly. Second thing, don't ever think we have. Um, sorry, don't don't ever think we've got sin beaten either. It's. It's a war. That's why you've got to keep working at killing sin. So don't get comfortable with it. Don't ever think we've got it beaten. But thirdly, don't ever think we can never progress in our struggle with sin. We can because of God's grace. We really can. And the measure is kind of the same point in the year from the year before rather than from day to day. Just look at it. Talk about with people. Encourage each other. We can because of God's grace, by His Spirit. But more of that next week when we look at chapter 7. But it's worth closing with the very last line of that great hymn that John Newton wrote called Amazing Grace. In all of this, please remember, it's grace has brought me safe thus far. What's the last bit? And grace will lead us home. Let's pray with God. Our Father, we do thank you for your grace in our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that in your mercy you will help us to live by remembering it, bathing in it, and therefore recognizing the awe and wonder of being united to Christ and slaves to you. And please help us therefore to live accordingly and to repent in the areas that we know we need to, to resolve to do that even now by your grace and keep each other accountable out of love for your glory and honour. And Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, I'm Eve, and I have the privilege of praying on our behalf today. Um, praying is simply talking to God. Um, if you agree with what I say, feel free to say Amen at the end. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray for our Christian brothers and sisters at the Australian Catholic University in North Sydney. As their current staff worker prepares to serve in Perth next year, please provide them with a new staff worker if it is your will. Please allow the group to continue to grow by meeting together and reading your word throughout the new year. Thank you for their current ministries on campus, especially the recently started prayer group and the weekly Bible studies. Allow the members to take every opportunity to spread the gospel, and may you work in the hearts of all that hear to ultimately repent and turn to you. Within our own uni, we thank you for the opportunity of Giving Week and for the loving generosity of our members. 
We pray for our members who may be feeling weighed down with assignments and exam preparations. We pray you will give them strength and motivation to do the best they can while still prioritising you and the church. We pray that our members will continue to use these last three weeks of uni to take every opportunity to share the gospel with our friends and classmates with boldness and love. On a larger scale, thank you for blessing us with a variety of people, cultures and languages. Within our country, we pray that through you, Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians can be reconciled. We pray specifically for the Indigenous Australians from the Living Water Community Fellowship in Darlington, the Sacred Tree St John's in Glebe, and the MacArthur Indigenous Church in Campbelltown. We pray for peace, forgiveness, repentance, and grace. May these churches also have the resources to care for people in need. Please use these churches to allow Indigenous and non-Indigenous community members to meet together in a Christian context to allow genuine reconciliation. We pray for the current leaders as they mentor and support the next generation of Indigenous leaders. By your power, may you raise up more Aboriginal leaders to serve you throughout Australia. Thank you that you know us all personally and listen to us when we pray to you. Amen. Amen.